Hi, Stably. Hi, cat lover. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing well. How are you? Good. How's your How's your level of desire for anything and everything? Uh, I uh, my desire to do this podcast right now is kind of low. Okay. Uh, because I feel good. pretty. <laughs> that's that's good. That's, that's great. good. You're right. I should fight our desires. Because uh, <laughs> I feel pretty unprepared. Okay. Um, uh, so uh, we should tell our listeners the book that we're doing this week is uh-huh. On Desire, Why We Want What We Want by William B. Irvine, who is a professor of philosophy at Wright State University. And uh, astute listeners, um, and I apologize <laughs> to those listeners who, you know, listening along with us uh, have read what we said was going to be the next book. Uh, you know, they read it in preparation for this podcast. Um, we had said we were going to read Ars Vitae, uh, The Fate of Inwardness and the Return of the Ancient Arts of Living uh, by Elizabeth Lash Quinn. Uh, but we decided not to. We ejected. And uh, I think you're very smart, Stanley. Uh, uh-huh. Here we go. You let me go first. So I was halfway through this book when I'm like, have you, uh, Stanley, have you, how much have you read of this? And you're like, no, I haven't started yet. And I'm like, this is the worst fucking thing I've ever read. <laughs> Which I, I don't know if I agree with that, but you know. Uh, did you, did you end up reading any of it? Yes, I did. Okay. Well, yep. maybe we should have a little mini discussion of, yeah, of sure. that book first. Uh, so what did you think of that book? So I think it depends how you're approaching it. Yeah. Um, what I think this book really is, and what is the what is the word I'm looking for? It is an annotated bibliography. Yes, it is. Um, which is not necessarily a bad thing at all. Uh, in fact, it's, if that's what I you're, found yeah. it, yeah. So if you're looking for almost like a, a source book of, um, you know, different authors to read about a variety of different subjects that all kind of revolve around like the therapeutic state and Mm -hmm. um you know living (laughs) the right life and the good life and stoicism and a bunch of other like philosophical um concepts i think it might be a very good source yep um but if you're looking for i would i don't want to say like an easy breezy but if you're looking for kind of an organized uh, stripped down kind of cogent discussion of the topics that kind of just goes from A to B to C that this may not be it. So while I don't think it's the worst thing ever written, (laughs) that's pushing it. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's, um, it's almost like dipping into like a collected, like an edited volume with different people writing different essays about the same topic and you know that they're going to have like a different tone and it's not going to be super coherent. Um, so I think that might be an issue with it. So incoherent, nice incoherent and not cogent. No, how you no, would describe no. this book. No, I wouldn't say incoherent. Just um, it doesn't have this like a through line. Yeah, no, uh, I, I, I think you're right. Um, and I think the Stoics would agree with me. <laughs> When I say, oh, that, okay. <laughs> when, when I say that, that's so much of disappointment. Um, in fact, probably almost all disappointment comes from expectation, right? When something doesn't, when you have an expectation of something and it falls short of that, that's what that that is 
the definition of expectation of uh, disappointment. And so, yeah, I, I think if I had come to this with the uh, expectation that this is an annotated bibliography, because I think you're absolutely right, that is a, a great way to describe it, then I wouldn't have been disappointed. But uh, I have don't I mean, I'm not crazy for having come to this book with a different expectation, because uh, part of the reason that I thought like, yeah, this would be a good book to read was all the reviews. And I'm looking uh, on the Amazon page, it has reviews from a bunch of um, right-wing sources that I would normally trust, like <laughs> City Journal and Spike uh -huh. and Law and Liberty. And it says things like, uh, Ars Vitae is a remarkable book. The prose feels intensely personal and even intimate, engaging the reader and the author's search for meaning. No, this book reads like, uh, I don't know what, and her prose is horrendous. It was like, um, <laughs> I, what, what, brought, what it brought to mind was kind of like, you know, when it's raining, like really hard and you're driving and you can't see. And then for a minute you are, you go through a tunnel yes. and everything's normal. And then you're back. So when she would quote other people, it would be, it would be like that. It would be like a breath of fresh air that you'd be back to this like grinding, uh, anyhow, horrible. And she, does she does this incredibly weird thing where you know she's basically saying i am gonna look at modern versions of right or the modern mm -hmm. remnants of stoicism cynicism epicureanism right yep and so, a few others yeah and a few others and so she begins by saying let's define uh epicureanism and then she does or let's define stoicism she does and then she says stoicism is not the, de the dictionary definition of stoicism, right? Capital lowercase s stoicism. Right. Um, we can call that hard stoicism, which is like, why, why call it hard stoicism or whatever? And then she proceeds to say, here are all these examples in popular culture of the thing that is not stoicism. And right. <laughs> anyhow, uh, ditto with Epicureanism. Um, you know, Epicureanism is not hedonism, she says. But then she proceeds to talk about like eat, pray, love, and like this. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was just like I hated that book, and well, I can I can take it. I guess you I guess you just don't get it, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I I didn't I didn't hate it. I didn't uh, dislike it as much as uh, as much as you did. Obviously, <laughs> it seems to be the most hated thing in your entire life. No, no, uh, but it was just I was just like, oh god, like um, uh, it's funny because normally a book like you know just you know you read books and they're not for, a book is not for you and you just put it down. Yeah. Um, but because I was reading it for this podcast, I felt like I had to keep going. And I just, I couldn't take it after a while. It's uh, anyway. not, very, not very stoic of you. Not very stoic. Well, no, I mean. <laughs> not hard I, stoic. The, the ultimate, <laughs> yes, true. Um, no, I, I think it's interesting because you, um, and I don't mean this in a negative way or anything. I think yep. you, when you, when you read stuff, because probably because of your, your law training and just, you know, what you do for a living and, and all that stuff, you're, you're very much interested in like, what is your point? And like, you better get to it. Right. <laughs> and obviously like well-written is always a plus and, and all of that. But I think you're, you have, uh, you have less time for like meandering uh, and cul-de-sacs than I do. <laughs> I, I don't mind that if sure. it is enjoyable. And this is no, just, no, I understand. Yeah. 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 Uh, okay. So 
so I said, okay, Stan White. Um, and it's funny. So the reason that I picked this book, and this, so this book was your suggestion. It was my pick for for the month or whatever. Oh, here we um, go. The blame. The blame. The blame. No, no, no. I don't blame you at all. Uh, no, no. Because uh, you didn't. I mean, look, I read the reviews. And mm-hmm. I blame the reviews is what I blame. Uh, <laughs> again, it's like, uh, and I went back and I read some of the reviews after I decided this book was terrible. Uh, and I, I, the reviews were horrible themselves anyhow um did you read like the actual because i didn't read any of the reviews i heard this on a podcast obviously so just you know in case people don't know this is actually uh, uh, christopher lash's daughter and you know a scholar in her own right but you know she's addressing a lot of the topics that he addressed so i heard her on a podcast it sounded interesting i actually bought this book months ago um mm-hmm. And I never read any of the reviews. Obviously, there's all like the little blurbs. Did you actually read the longer reviews or just the After blurbs? I read the blurbs, uh, which convinced me to say, yeah, okay, this is what I want. Um, uh-huh. Then uh, again, when I was halfway through the book, I'm like, this is terrible. What were the reviews thinking? I went back and picked uh-huh. up some of the reviews uh-huh. and the reviews made no sense. Uh, uh-huh. So uh, whatever, uh, clearly it's me. Uh, I'm an eccentric in, in this way, I guess. Uh-huh. uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, sure you are. <laughs> so, so the reason I picked this book, and I asked you what book should, you know, I, I sort of described the book that I wanted and you suggested this one, mm-hmm. uh, was in response to the last book we read, which we thought was phenomenal, uh, which was, uh, what's it called? Uh, the Rebel Yell or Rebel, the Rebel Cell, <laughs> a.k.a. Yeah, Nation of Rebel. Nation, Nation of Rebels. Yeah. Um, and my question, uh, like the thing that, that, that left me hanging with that book was the authors argue that it's impossible to resist consumerism, uh-huh. right? That um, it's just not possible um, and all the attendant ills uh, uh, thereof. Um, and I'm like, no, I don't, I don't think so. And I think people try to. Um, and I'm clearly, uh, you know, obviously I know uh, the stoic way to try to address some of those things, but what are, what are other ways that people are trying to use their reason or whatever to uh, address the ills of consumerism, right? Uh, or or mm-hmm. to, resist, to resist consumerism. And uh, you suggested this book because again, it surveys modern expressions of stoicism, cynicism, uh, Epicureanism, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but again, there's no such thing. Um, <laughs> so when, when I, I said, look, we, we have to pick something else. Um, I thought, look, I'm just going to pick some uh, Stoic um, writings from like the, <laughs> the Hellenic Stoics. And, uh, and we could just discuss those. But then I remembered this book that I had read like, I don't know, a year or two ago uh, called On Desire by William Irvine, who's written a bunch of books about stoicism subsequent to this. This was, I think, might be his first book. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yeah, and so his story is that he, uh, so he's a philosopher. He was doing a study on desire. Um, and that's what, that's what his research was focused on. And um, he embarked on writing this book um, about what all the different major schools of thought, philosophical, religious thought, um, thought about desire and how it handled it. And he says that going into this book, he thought that, you know, he was expecting that out of it, 
he might adopt Zen Buddhism. Uh-huh, of course. Right? Like just <laughs> as a typical, right, as anybody would uh, in his milieu, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, but after researching everything, he ended up becoming a practicing Stoic. And his second book, which is called um, Guide to the Good Life, uh, yep. was one of the first books that really um, kicked off this modern renaissance of, you know, popular renaissance of, of Stoicism as a, as, a, as a thing one can practice. Um, and it, so just as an aside, he's actually not in Ars Vita, right? No, that's another yes. thing. Yeah, so it's, it's a little... Shocking. You know, like, um, <laughs> uh, like, um, like Ryan Holiday is in it, and and you know, Ryan Holiday comes in for like this excoriating critique <laughs> for for just writing. I mean, so he wrote a business book. He didn't write an academic book. What? Why are you holding him up to a different standard? I, like, why? Well, why you aren't know, you? Why aren't you excoriating? E pray love. Right. Yeah. I mean. Okay. <laughs> am, I, am I wrong? She definitely yeah. has like her uh, blind spots. Okay. Yeah. I mean, she uses the word Latinx unironically in the book. <laughs> Go on. Well, defend, you your, defend, defend your girl. Defend my girl. Listen, I can't. That was the publisher's decision. <laughs> Anyhow, so I suggested, I already read this book, uh, as I said, a year or two ago. Um, but it made me when I when I went and looked at it, I'm like, oh, this is the book I've I wanted, because it does exactly <laughs> yes. that. It's a survey of how to deal with desire, but that is essentially what consumerism, uh, is, you know, what you're trying to do when you're addressing your desire for consumer goods, mm-hmm. uh, is trying to deal with your desire, and it's a survey of how um, different schools of thought address it. Um, so, what did you think? Well, as opposed to Ars Vita, uh, this is definitely breezy, yeah, <laughs> and uh, cogent, yeah. Um, it, it, um, yeah. I, I, I guess I didn't put two and two together that he wrote this first yeah. and then went on to become Mister Official Stoic Philosopher. Yeah, yeah, because he is actually like a, unlike a lot of people who write stuff in this field, he's an actual like f- academic philosopher. Mm-hmm. Um, so. It was, it was probably a little too long. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, but I mean, but it wasn't that long. You know, it, it's it has big big margins <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, big font and a lot of spacing. Uh, it probably could have been a little shorter, but I also found it kind of a little bit lacking in uh, like usable advice on how to. Uh, how to actually combat desire. I know like the whole conclusion is like a bullet bullet list of how to do it, but right. um, it would have been more useful to, well, it would have been more interesting, I guess, to find more contemporary examples that didn't involve like the Amish or right. <laughs> Henry David Thoreau or living in an earthen barrel uh, yes. or anything like that. Uh, but that's, these are like mild, uh, mild criticisms. It was, um, it, it was good. I liked it. I enjoyed it. I, I've read his, I've, I've started his other book three times. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so he definitely has a, a very conversational, non-academic, non-turgid way of writing, which is appreciated as always. And um, yeah, he, he has a very good, good way of just explaining 
all of these different concepts in a way that's like comprehensible and memorable. Yeah. Um, I, I think you're right that uh, that is kind of what I want and what I thought ours would might do, which is give me contemporary people, you know, basically examples of contemporary, contemporary applications uh, of these ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. He doesn't. Um, he just goes back to, in fairness to him, that's not what he was trying to do. Right. And the title of the book no. is why we want what we want. Um, and so it's really just explaining it. Um, uh, explain and a lot of the book actually is not so much about the philosophy, but about the science of mm-hmm. why we have desires and why we feel kind of uh, powerless to resist uh, desires, et cetera. And I will be honest, I skimmed that section because <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've like yeah, you ab- understand it. Ab- absorbed all of that you know, from other sources before. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, it, it, on the other hand, it is nice that he didn't try to write some sort of like self-help, um, like, you know, desktop calendar, just rip off the day and you get your next hint for how to combat desire type He's you know, done that He's done this subsequently, right? And I and I think so, you know, he wrote this book and then subsequent or during this book, he realized that he would become a practicing stoic. Um, and then subsequently he wrote a guide to the good life, which I think so again, this book is why we want what we want. And the next book is a guide to the good life, which so I think um, in that book you will find the advice, right? Um that you might be looking for, but from a stoic perspective. And so I think what this book is, is letting you know, hey, here are all the different ways um, that uh, people have found success uh, to combat desire. And depending on who you are, um, different ones might appeal to you, right? Like I would say that probably isn't one, one right way for everybody. That's true. Yeah. And maybe we should uh, briefly actually discuss like the yeah. way the, the, the book is structured. So I can do that or you can do it. Please, Dan. Three, three times already, <laughs> supposedly. Uh, so let's see. So again, it's a nice, breezy, easy, breezy book. Um, so he organizes it into more or less like three sections. So there's an introductory sections where section where he just goes into what the problem with desire is and why it might be something you want to address. Um, and then, um, and he, it's, it's, it's great because he, you know, he, he brings up a bunch of different examples of um, stuff that for us is very familiar. And if you actually read the, the book we talked about last time, I don't know if any of the cases overlap, but it's very, very similar to mm-hmm. kind of the argument against consumerism. Um, that you know there are all these people out in the world who seem to have everything and are striving for everything and they want the next car the next big house the next big job blah 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 and they seem miserable <laughs> uh in, in a lot of ways so like what what is the problem and the problem is desire that you know you crave these things and these things are in large part uh, positional goods which i think you know we talked about last mm-hmm. time as well um and you know this is a zero sum game that you know you're never you're never actually going to achieve true happiness by playing this game 
So, you know, that's the problem. And he, uh, like throughout the book, he actually, you know, he brings up, you know, examples of people uh, who, you know, suffer through these crises of desire, as he calls them, like uh, Larry McMurty, who just passed away. I guess, you know, he wrote Lonesome Dove and a bunch of other books. I guess he had like heart surgery. And then for the next two years, just didn't want to read anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like he, he, like he could read, he didn't lose the ability to read, but he lost the desire to read. And it wasn't depression or anything like that. It was just, he just had no desire to read. Um, and this is all in a section about like the three different crises of desire. There's uh, the des what does he talk about? You lose your ability to desire, you lose, or you discover that you no longer want to desire, or the the worst one, which of course has a, a, an example from Russia, <laughs> Tol <laughs> uh, Tolstoy, who um, you basically start to think there's no no point to anything at all, <laughs> no point in desire, <laughs> no point in desire at all. Uh, or living basically. So that right. usually leads to trying to kill yourself, which Tolstoy did, of course. So that's, that's the first section. And the second section, which I um, kind of, you know, uh, <laughs> breezed over because again, I, I think I, you know, I, I understand it. Um, it's, it's the science behind desire and um, what he calls the, the BIS, the BIS. And what is that? The, uh, the biological incentive system. Right. So basically it's in a nutshell, it's this evolutionary science slash evolutionary psychology argument for why we desire things. So it's survival and reproduction is why we want things. It's not for happiness or, or meaning or anything like that. So, because we're animals. Right. What matters ultimately yeah. is that your genes uh, are reproduced. Yeah. And so you're, you know, your program, your program to have desires um, that will result in have you know greater probability that your genes are passed on, whether those desires are obtainable or not, you know, or right. satisfiable or not, whether that makes you miserable or not. That's you know the, the genes don't care about how you feel; they just care about being passed on. Yeah, and the argument for why that would lead to just uh, overabundance of desire is. And, you know, I'm sure lots of people could quibble with it is the people that kind of laid around like the Diogenes and mm -hmm. earth, earthen jugs uh, probably did not have offspring. <laughs> right. So if you're kind of really satisfied with living, you know, in rags and not having enough food, you're probably not going to have children. So people like that don't procreate. They don't pass along their genes. So yeah. the, the only people left alive are the ones who were constantly craving more, more food, more shelter, and especially, you know, more status, more positional goods. Cause that's, yeah. that's what brings the ladies to the yard. Yep. Even yeah. though they might be miserable. Right. And yes. Diogenes uh, stipulate for sake of argument that Diogenes and Thoreau were quite content uh, in their lives. Neither of them have kids as far as right. I'm aware of, right. Yes. And I mean, we, 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 the Diogenes know. would just masturbate in public. Sure. Whenever he had that urge. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen, who, who, <laughs> who among, among us? <laughs> uh, but you know, these these uh, these instincts uh, for more, you know, social goods and just more physical goods and, and things like that, obviously, go back probably millions of years to, you know, our, our ape ancestors. So it's not like people learned how to do this in ancient Greece. This is basically more or less hardwired right. uh, into our brains. So it's going to be very hard to snap out of it and that's what the last 
uh, chapter th or section three is about is, right. you know, how do you how do you kind of get over the BIS, the BIS? How do you the, how do you deal with how do you deal with it? Yeah. So before we get to that third section, which <clears throat> you know deals with dealing. Um, <laughs> okay. I want to talk about the second section. Um, this is in the second section is where he brings up Hume, right? And uh, and you're like nervously starting to you know, break a sweat and flipping through because you didn't read any of it. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Um, David Hume. Yes. So uh, just to, to, again, go back to the question of, is it impossible to deal to rationally or voluntarily deal with uh, desire to address it, to curb it in any way? Or is it just, you know, that the passions uh, are the master of the intellect and there's just nothing you can do, right? You can try, but ultimately the passions are going to win out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think he, he basically says, I mean, addressing Hume directly, he says, yeah, I mean, you know, my um, model of desire is based on Hume, he says, but he also points out that Hume had a lot of internal contradictions to what he was saying, because Hume nevertheless, uh, <clears throat> I, I think, uh, accepted reason and would then, you know, use, uh, sort of um, rely on reason for some other things that he would say. And uh, I, I don't know, I, I think the conclusion is it's very, very difficult um, because the passions, you know, emotions are like a toddler, like a, like a super toddler that just keeps, um, you know, yelling and yelling and yelling and yelling and banging on the table um, until it gets what it wants. It's the only way you could shut it up is to just give it what it wants. Yeah. And so it's very difficult, but it's not impossible. And you can develop intellectually, you can develop tech, you know, either intellectually or maybe uh, through an emergent process where, you know, uh, uh, a tradition emerges that works. Um, you can, you know, we can devise uh, things we can choose to do that um, tame desire, at least, you know, as much as we can. What did you, anyhow, what did you think about all that? No, I mean, it's, you know, I, we, you think of like, you know, that toddler, I guess, is the id. Going back to Freud. Uh, anyway. Um, I, I need a bell that I hit whenever you say, we talk about Freud. Uh, We're yeah. Canadians. <laughs> She's not Canadian, I hope. Neither is Irvine. Actually, is no. Irvine? Okay. Thank I God. don't think so. Okay. Uh, Hume? Kind of Canadian. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Um, so I think, I don't know if it's in this book, but, um, uh, who is, um, he's the psychologist at NYU. Now he wrote the coddling of the American mind. Oh what yeah. Um, height, uh, height, uh, height. Yeah. Jonathan so he, height. yeah. So he, one of, I think one of his popular first books was something about emotion and reason. And he uses the, uh, maybe Hume used the metaphor of like the writer and the elephant and the elephant. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's in this, um, it's in yeah, but you know, you know, you think of David Hume, and I imagine some guy wearing like a stuffy, powdered wig and walking around in uncomfortable breeches and all of that stuff. And you know, you could say like, well, on one hand, you know, he's not walking around naked; he's controlling his emotions. Presumably, right. he's not, you know, using the street as a latrine and all these other things. So it's it is possible to control that screaming toddler. 
on the other hand, he is probably trying to act in a way that, you know, raises his esteem in other people's eyes, Mm -hmm. um, you know, makes him wealthy and, uh, and famous and important. So he can't fully give up that, that those positional goods. Um, but you know, you could just look at like a person like that and say like, well, you know, it's, it's obviously very hard and you're never going to fully, again, unless you go live in a cave, um, (laughs) <laughs> like the YouTube video you sent me a few <laughs> days ago uh, of a gentleman who decided to just basically live in a cave and eat out of dumpsters. Unless you do that, you are not, yeah, you're never fully going to conquer your your emotions, your desires. I mean, not sure you, you fully want to anyway, but, um, you know, the fact that we're here using, you know, indoor plumbing and electricity and all those things and, and not hitting each other with sticks shows that obviously, you know, we can tamp those emotions down. And yeah. like you said, it, it's not just, if it was just left to people on their own, you know, we would obviously be in a massive amount of trouble. Um, but, you know, we have culture and institutions uh, for things like that, which actually goes back to kind of something in Ars Vita where, she cites a gentleman named Rife, I guess, who, who wrote about like what culture and institutions are for. And it's for kind of tamping down um, our id, essentially, right. <laughs> our urges and allowing us to not feel so alone and isolated um, in the process. So, um, you know, we, yeah, I think we've, we as human beings, you know, we have philosophy and self-help and, and institutions and families and things like that, that, that help us kind of not be fully enthralled to the emotions or desire. So, although it's interesting, I mean, I think this is something a lot should point out that the self-help emerges as institutions begin to wane. Sure. Yes. And I mean, you know, but it it is something, it's not like people, you know, people are obviously, uh, they, they're looking for answers. They're seeking something to help them feel uh, like, you, you know, they're looking for guidance. Oh my God. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. He's, he's loose. He's, he's loose. loose. <laughs> it's okay. Very tay. Yeah. <laughs> I have nothing to hide. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's uh, it, it might not be the best way of dealing with stuff, but people are obviously looking for something to help them. Um, so, you know, if, if everyone was just giving into, desire and emotions I, I don't know if you would see uh like half a bookstore is basically self-help now right um right and so um yeah i, I think it's it, it, whatever i <clears throat> so i i think that the uh nation of rebels guys are just wrong um when they say that you just can't resist consumerism um, I guess maybe if what they mean by that is you can't resist consumerism completely, then they're, then yes, of course, I think that's right. Um, but I don't think it's, uh, irrational, um, or, uh, impossible to try to resist consumerism and desire, um, period, just to try to, um, well, it also depends. I, yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Go no, go ahead. Oh, it depends, you know, and maybe we discussed it last week. It, it depends what your definition of consumerism is. I feel like there's this yes. low, lowercase consumerism, which is you participate in any kind of economy and you buy things and save right. money. And it's like, well, 
and I, I think they try to address this by saying, it seems like a lot of counterculture people actually view that as mm-hmm. like just they feeding confuse, the monster. They confuse yeah. capitalism, or consumerism with capitalism. Or just any kind of like society. Right, right. But 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 yeah, sure. We'll we'll say sec- we'll say capitalism because that's what most of us, you know, are, are used to. So there's, you know, like yeah, like even if you just save all your money, it will be lent out to somebody and they'll buy a car, I guess. Uh, but then there's like big C consumerism, which I think is what you're talking about, which is just this kind of it's a treadmill. Unthink- I'm thinking, yeah, the the treadmill, the uh, the zero sum game, the positional goods, the keeping up with the Joneses, and I think you can actually separate those out without, again, living in the woods or becoming, you know, Thoreau or something like that. So I think in that sense they were wrong, um, but I think they're kind of their target audience. Yeah, probably yeah. just does just conflate like going to the grocery store and buying an apple with. You know, oh, that's Monsanto, man. That's <laughs> that's United Fruit, man. Uh, I'm terrible. Uh, so yeah, I think there is a way to like draw that line. All right. So in the third part of the book, um, he says, "Okay, the part, well, how, I, the part I read, the part you read." So how how do people how have people historically dealt with desire, and how do people keep desire in check? Right. And that's further subdivided into religious advice, mm-hmm. philosophical advice, and then eccentrics. Yes. <laughs> so why, why don't you run through those, Stanley? All right. So uh, like you said, philosophical advice, uh, religious advice, eccentrics, uh, the least useful part is the eccentrics. So <laughs> I don't know if you ah, want to talk about that first. In it's, my interesting. <laughs> it's interesting. It's um, interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, because these are people who, um, for whatever reason, they uh, uh, they were born, you know, without a gene or with a gene, that they really don't care what other people think of them. Right. And so, and so then, if you don't care what people think of you, then your desire goes. I mean, one thing I take from this book is that desire, in almost complete part, is uh, driven by other people. You know, yes. And that's something he, he brings up is like almost everything is beyond like a certain level of food and shelter and I don't know, water and safety. Almost everything we do is, is in regards to other people because we're like political, political uh, beings. I mean, uh, sort of a thought experiment that he brings up in the book that I think is incredibly useful that I started to just use uh, uh, myself and actually kind of present it to Kathleen uh, as well. Is here, to, here we go. <laughs> is to think is whenever you're doing something and, I, and you say, why am I doing this? Or why am I choosing this thing? Ask yourself, would you be doing the same thing if tomorrow everybody in the world disappeared and you were just the last person on earth? Would you be doing sure. this? Would you be yeah. care about this thing? And a lot of the times the answer is no. Like the only reason right. you're doing this is, you know, because of other people. Sure, sure. And so eccentrics, you know, they don't give a shit what other people think about them. And so they just do what they want. And they, you know, in, in the, I guess there are all kinds of eccentrics. Um, there are, you know, people who just have a hundred cats. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that, you know, you know, who am I to judge? 
Um, Sounds like there might be some some uh, uh, unhinged desire going on there. Could so be. I, I think we're free to judge in that sense. But the the two um, the two that he that he focuses on uh, Diogenes of Sinope and who's a cynic and uh, Thoreau. Um, I don't know, kind of appealing to me. They're just aesthetics in a, in a, in a way, and just and just yeah. by by virtue of their example, it just puts into relief. Um, how stupid a lot of what, you know, people who are otherwise, you know, seen as like successful people, what their behavior is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's, it. so do you know what the vampire problem is? Uh, no, I don't, I'm trying to remember where I've heard it, but uh, the vampire problem is before oh, sure. you not everybody a, could be like this. Uh, well, not just that, but before you are before you become a vampire, yeah. it sounds awful, and it's like the last thing you want to happen right. to you is like, oh my god, I'm going to get bit by a vampire and have to sleep in a coffin, blah blah blah, and I'll be a monster. But after you're a vampire, <laughs> uh, you would never want it any other way, right? Yeah. So I think there might be like a vampire problem with especially the, like the, the eccentrics uh, since we're talking about them. That, well, be, be more explicit in what, in what way? So you, I think you have to not, you don't just have to want to be that way. You have to be the kind of person who wants to want to right. be that way because it's such a huge step for leaving aside the, like just masturbating in, in the street part. It's the, which might be a plus uh, it's the, you know, renouncing everything and just being cold and hungry and exposed all the time and not and especially not caring what other people want or not caring about what other people think of you um because this you know in the very beginning he talks about you know like we are social animals uh, so much of this stems from the fact that we are social animals so how do you stay a social animal and right. you know maintain a society if everyone is just like a big jerk you know because that's what these people are yeah, yeah so that, that that always like crops up in my mind is like are these people just mooches they're just parasites you know yes like... yes and i mean <laughs> i don't know about parasite right because well, sure. uh that probably is a little bit too far but yes it's impossible if everybody acted the way thoreau did you he could you could not act the way thoreau did you see what I'm saying? Like yeah. Thoreau was able to to live the way he did because everybody else, because there was a market that you could go to, and it wouldn't be a market if everybody acted the way he did. I think he, could, I think he even addresses that in in the book. Um, maybe I, maybe I'll see if I can find it. But uh, I mean, Thoreau himself says, you know, presented with the with the objection, not everybody could act the way you do. He addresses mm -hmm. it somehow. I'll, I'll see if I can find it. But okay, so the eccentrics, put them aside. Uh huh. Anyway, so yeah, the book starts with, or the section starts with talking about how religious uh, religions have addressed uh, desire in the past. So uh, he starts, I think, with Buddhism, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah Zen Buddhism. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. So he talks about you know Buddha originally, and like the the noble truths and the uh, the noble paths and all of that good stuff, which I'm not going to list all of them. Um, but, um, you know, he talks about how it's, it's, it's a middle path between hedonism and asceticism. Um, that's what Buddhism is supposed to be. Right. And there's, you know, a variety of different 
like practices and it's not a religion. I guess some people say it's not a religion, but anyway, there's, there's a philosophy behind it and a set of very important practices. And you can't really, you can't just do the philosophy. You have to do the practices. Um, it's not just reading a book. Um, and, you know, I don't know how deep into what Buddhism says you want to get, but that's, you know, that's one method of dealing with desire. And he also talks about Zen Buddhism, which is kind of its own thing, um, which doesn't even seem to really have a philosophy. Uh, I guess if you ask yeah. what it is, uh, a monk will hit you with a stick. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, well, but I, I, I think what you can take out of that whole chapter is that with mm -hmm. Zen Buddhism is it's meditation, right? Yeah. So yeah, it goes to the, the, the practice uh, of what practice. you have to do. Yes. Yeah. 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 And then similarly with like um, Christianity, uh, it's about prayer. Yes. Yeah. And um, you know, it's, it's, it's he doesn't really does he explicitly say it's a form of meditation he doesn't really not really but he but he kind of keeps throughout the book he lumps together meditation and prayer mm -hmm. yeah and he doesn't really spend a lot of time so uh, he doesn't spend a lot of time in christianity until he gets to like the amish right uh but there is a little bit of discussion of how of how not now because <laughs> no one most christians don't seemingly uh I mean, I don't know if you're going to hear a lot of this at like a, a mega church, right. um, <laughs> uh, but he talks about especially kind of early modern and medieval uh, Christian thinkers and how they tried to deal with with desire. And there were some who were almost aesthetic mm -hmm. uh, in the in the way that they you know try to deal with it, um, and then there were others who you know were less so. Um, so, but it, it's, he doesn't really get into the detail of of that so much as much as he does with Buddhism, which I guess is you were saying when he first started this, he was going to, he was going to convert to Buddhism. So he kind of, you kind of see that in this section. Right. But, but again, uh, uh, so let's quickly talk about the Amish. Um, yes. What they, how they address it is work is how I would. Uh, so it's work, but it's, I mean, obviously they have um, certain institution or societal uh, prohibitions and prescriptions um, where they're, you know, they're very cognizant of what can undermine their society or institutions and they guard against those, uh, you know, very much so. Um, but it all goes back to work, right? Like they don't, they're not against technology per se, they just are against technology that would create so much free time where you know it's a leisure is a devil's workshop or whatever or, or idle hands. Right. <laughs> uh -huh. um, so that I mean, and that makes sense. Yeah. So it's um, it's and it's not just work. Um, it's more like the work is because you know the work is a consequence of wanting to kind of control their desire. Mm -hmm. um, so he, uh, he, I don't know if he's quoting somebody or if he just says it outright. I was, what does he say? Uh, um, what greases the, sl the slippery slope 
is not, oh my God, what is this? Is not logic, but human psychology. Mm-hmm. So the reason they, and he, he discusses kind of like, you would maybe look at the Amish and say like, well, you're just being hypocrites because like, wait, you're allowed to have a tractor, but only if it's in the barn. <laughs> right. And you can have a telephone, but only for a conducting business. And, but you're not allowed to have like you, a dishwasher. Right. You can have a um, phone, but only at the workshop and you can't, yeah. you can have, I don't know, um, you know, some battery powered something, but you can't have a dishwasher. But yeah. Things are all perfectly consistent. If you think about it, uh, in terms of, um, the kind of labor saving. Yeah, exactly. So it goes, it goes to what are they actually looking for? They're not looking for, you know, working 18 hours a day necessarily, but it's about controlling your desires. So the reason you don't have a telephone to call your friends is that atomizes you. That means you can talk to individual people from the comfort of like your own little room, instead of being out amongst the entire community where everyone can basically spy on each other and keep an eye on you to make sure that you, your head doesn't get too big. This is kind of what it's all about. And the reason that you can have a tractor, I don't know why they just don't have a generator, but so they're allowed to have generators and tractors, but only if they're powered by the, by batteries or, you know, just gas or something, they don't allow power lines. And that's so that you don't feel tempted to leave the farm and go into the city and, you know, you're just getting groceries. And the next thing, you know, you're at a strip club and, you know, (laughs) if you have a tractor that you drive around for your fields, you will you know, there will come a time where you'll be like, oh, I'm just going to take it in town to pick up this thing. And that's, yes, it just, yeah. And eventually you have a, you have a car and that seems to be like the demon for them is a car. And all of these things are, are, are status symbols. And what the Amish are very much against is our status symbols. Right. So that's why they have these seemingly like weird and arbitrary rules. It's to keep everyone equal. Um, even their elders, like even the, if you become an elder, you're supposed to even like demean yourself, not demean yourself, but um, be, you know, even tougher than everyone else. Like you don't put a windshield on your buggy or, right. <laughs> or, or something like that. So that, I actually found that very interesting. Just like it's a, it, it makes total sense. Like the, the slippery, the slippery slope is not greased by logic, but by psychology. It's what you do that, you know, pushes you down that slope. It's not any, I guess, going back to David Hume, it's not, yeah, you don't, choose. it's not these logical arguments. It's right. just like, this is like your emotions and what you do turn you into the, the person that you're going to be. Um, so that's, that's why they're so strict. Um, and it, it, the other interesting thing is I, I'm going to mispronounce it, the, the rumspringa, mm-hmm. right? Like how they allow people when they turn 16 or 18 to like wander off the reservation and do whatever you want for years actually. And at a certain point you have to make a decision. Do you come back and be baptized or do you leave the community forever? And at least according to him, they, you know, 80, 90% of the people come back and join the church because they don't want, they don't want people who secretly harbor a desire to, you know, not be there. Like yeah, that, that undermines they, the whole plan. So yeah, you want to weed out those people, and the best way to do that is to let yeah, you know, uh, uh, let them go out, and then have a point where you have to make a commitment to come back in, and that weeds yeah. out the people who maybe don't belong. Uh, so okay, so that's religious advice, um, and there's philosophical advice, and mm-hmm. 
sort of the distinction between the two that he points out is that uh, religious advice um, is often about the reward you get for for following advice is often couched as being in the afterlife. Yes. Um, whereas philosophical advice is about here and now. And uh, philosophical advice is about employing reason, whereas uh, you know, religious advice is uh, about prayer and meditation. And I would add to that about um, uh, social um, enforcement of you know, certain rules. Yeah, like the like like the practice of it, but not just you're not doing it on your own. Right, that's, that's, that's my what point. You, yeah, yeah that's philosophical what... advice is something that um, an individual can take and use. Right. Whereas some of the religious advice requires a community. Yeah, and you actually it kind of becomes obvious that like when you look back, it's who are the people that can really accomplish these things? It's the Amish, mm-hmm. and then it's a bunch of like random not cults but you know like these utopian colonies that people set up where you kind of separate yourself from the world and everyone's basically spying on everyone else all the time um or you know if you're a zen buddhist you're probably in some sort of monastery Um, i mean what you're doing is basically using reason you know reason was used at some point to create a system by which you set up the incentives where (laughs) such that the social um, incentive, right? You're hacking your bis, right? Uh, <laughs> create social incentives where status is derived from uh, conformity with a humble, you know, uh, you know, system. I, I don't know how to how to put it into words, but does that make sense? Oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, like you you realize that it's too difficult to do it on your own as a, as a single person. You just can't, um, or you know, that, not just you can't, but, the, but what you're doing is you're seeking status, right? And so, well, what if we hack it so that status is gained <laughs> from acting like a, you know, from, from not doing these consumerist things? Such a cynic. Ah, Such very a good. cynic. <laughs> All right, and and the, yes. So anyway, enough enough of the religious people. Uh, and then yeah, the section moves on to like the Stoics, the Epicureans, and the skeptics. So this is your jam, Jerry. So do you want to want to chat about that? Uh, I mean, not really, because I, I feel like I know this backwards and forwards. <laughs> and maybe our our uh, listeners don't, to which I would say, go read this book. It's great. And there's some others uh, by William Irvine that you might want to read. Um, mm-hmm. But look, the Stoics just basically say um, there are certain things that are up to you and there are certain things that are not up to you. And so there's no sense in worrying about the things that are not up to you. And the things that are up to you uh, is your judgments, your opinions, right? So mm-hmm. something happens in the world, you have no control over that. Um, what you can control is how you respond to that or you know what it makes what that makes you feel. Um, and so he gives the example of say uh, a insult. Somebody comes to you and says some words. And, you know, say they were, they were said in a foreign language, you have no idea what they said, this means nothing to you. Uh, if instead you realize that what they're saying is an insult, you will feel insulted and you will, you know, feel bad. But ultimately what was done was the same thing. It was just saying words were said, right? That's, that's, <laughs> yes. that's neither good nor bad nor anything, right? It's, it's totally how you react 
that makes it good or bad, or it makes you feel good, makes you feel bad, makes you feel indifferent. And so um, the Stoics said, well, you can use reason to say, to if you just kind of take a step back and look at the situation, you can kind of jujitsu your emotions and say, maybe initially, maybe for a split second, you'll feel bad. But if you just take a step back and you could say, no, this is stupid. There's no reason to feel bad about this because it's just words were said. And I can choose to not feel bad about this, not give a shit what this guy thinks of me or whatever. And then you'll be like, eh, whatever. Um, clearly that runs into the Humean <laughs> problem, right? right? Where it's, it's, um, it is exhausting to be constantly doing that, right? Um, mm -hmm. you, you know, uh, this is other scholarship, uh, not in this book. I think it might indeed be in Height's book. And uh, what was it called? The moral, um, the righteous mind, the righteous mind. Um, about willpower, right? We have a certain amount of, you know, of willpower as humans and it depletes. And so um, intellectually resisting uh, desire, I think is hard, right? But I think what the Stoics would say is that with practice, right? If you practice it and they have a bunch of different ways that you can practice, um, it just becomes second nature. Like you can, you can begin to do it and you can become, uh, um, you know, you can basically decide to not worry about things that you can't control and understand that what you can control is how you react to things and then choose, um, you know, certain paths that uh, lead you to contentment rather than constantly feeling anxious or seeking status or feeling insulted, you know, it's or being worried about death, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and by the way, that's another thing about stoicism, which is, and I think, and by the way, I, I'm curious to, to hear from you how you would distinguish Epicureanism from Stoicism. But another thing with the Stoics, and I think it's true also with the Epicureans, is that they would say, you know, happiness is impossible. Right? You might feel happy for a moment, right? We, we experience happiness, but happiness is not a state of being. People cannot be happy. Like there's nobody who is just like happy all the time. Um, uh, what, the best that you can hope for is contentment. Right and contentment or tranquility is another word that they use. It's just feeling like you are satisfied. You're satisfied with life. You know things are good. Right? Maybe you'll be sad sometimes because something bad happened, but you know you you have a way of dealing with that. Maybe you feel joy and happiness other times because good things happen or whatever. Um, but generally, what you aspire to is as much as possible to just feel content. Yeah, and I mean, the, okay, end of, end of the sermon. Um, yeah, and you know, I, I know we're kind of coming towards the end, but of all the, of all the, uh, and it makes sense why he kind of went this direction. Of all the, um, it's intellectual, like, sure, but of all the practices and uh, kind of traditions he discusses in the book, the the Stoic one seems the most one, the most logical to me the most practical and also the one least likely to cause some sort of like system-wide disaster, <laughs> uh, you know, because you can't if everybody adopted. Yeah. Like imagine everyone adopted it. Um, and, and there is some discussion towards the end where he says like, imagine everyone 
kind of became a, a, a thorough like figure. We wouldn't have SUVs and shopping malls anymore. Right. It's like, well, is that really such a bad thing? Yeah, <laughs> um, we wouldn't have uh, maybe vaccines. And... Yeah, so like you know, there there are a lot of very good things that are that are here because some scientist is like an egomaniac. Um, you know, that's you know we have we have, we have a lot of systems for kind of harvesting the good out of that uh you know greed is good and all that good stuff um so but you know you could also say well that would be replaced by you know desire to know and to help others mm. and and <laughs> yeah i know uh, <laughs> uh but you know something that something that you know the stoics it, it's briefly mentioned but i think it should be brought up more is it isn't and I think it's in discussion of Seneca, right? It isn't wealth and happiness and like good health and friends and family that are bad. People, I think, make that right. leap that Stoics like, you know, you should be poor and miserable and like kill your children and then you're a Stoic. That's not the point. Those are all good things that you should enjoy and be happy about. But it's the, um, it's the clinging to those things. It's the desire to have them. It's, you know, like the money is not the root of all evil. It's the uh, desire for money. That's the root of all evil. So that's what the Stoics say is it's the clinging on. It's the, you know, wailing yep. and gnashing of teeth that happens if you, you know, lose your job. Yep. Having a job is good. It's great. It allows you to do what you need to do. Um, so, you know, I, I find that the most, like I said, the most, you know, that's tractable. Interesting. I think it's um, I, I think it makes the most sense. So putting aside the societal uh, sure uh, issue, right? The um, uh, what's the word? Uh, yeah, the, the systemic risk associated with everybody <laughs> adopting. Yeah. It. Putting that aside, uh, I think it makes you're like, well, this makes the most sense. But I think that's to you, Stanley, and to me because of who we are. But I think to somebody else, um, something like Zen Buddhism or you know, just prayerful Christianity um, might make a lot more sense. Might, it might be a much better uh, option for them. Oh, sure. I'm just more community-minded, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, it kind of goes back, you know, what I kept thinking of is what, I guess it's in the, the, the Hawkins book, yeah. is um, like the, the doves and the hawks you know, like you can't live in a society where everyone is a dove. Right. Cause eventually a hawk is going to show up and just eat all of you. Right. Um, and, you know, I think stoicism. Yeah. I mean, I think if most people were stoic, if you had to choose one of these, you know, philosophies to live by um, you know, it seems like stoicism is the most robust one, but yeah, obviously if somebody wants to be a hermit or become a shaker or um, like a, a celibate monk, uh, more power to you. Uh, just don't masturbate in public, <laughs> maybe uh, so much. Uh, <laughs> so what is the difference between Stoics and Epicureans? I, so it's weird. The, he didn't really have a huge section on what the difference is. He said that the Epicureans reject uh, Stoic fatalism. Yeah. Right. But that everything else is more or less the same. Basically, uh, and the, yeah, and I, I'm sure there's a more more of a difference in reality. Um, one of the other similarities is, you know, the lowercase version of that word has come to mean something almost the opposite. Yeah, 
um, because stoicism has become like a stiff upper lip, like miserable monster type unemotional. person. Unemotional. Yeah. Yeah. Unemotional, which is not what stoicism is supposed to be. And Epicureans is just some sort of glutton who just drinks wine and eats cake. Hedonism. Like a hedonist. Yeah. You know uh, all these big words. So I looked up in, on Wikipedia before this podcast. I'm like, like, what is the difference? And Wikipedia says that Epicureanism declares pleasure to be its sole intrinsic goal. Uh, the concept that the absence of pain and fear constitutes the greatest pleasure and its advocacy of a simple life make it very different from hedonism. So it's stoicism, right? Basically, basically <laughs> so it's saying... I think, yes, it declares that pleasure is the intrinsic goal. And that's why I think people say, oh, it's like hedonism. But then it defines pleasure to mean absence of pain um, and simple life. Well, that is also how uh, Stoics might define like tranquility, which is their goal. So, yeah, I, uh, I think it's mostly the... The disagree on fatalism. Yeah, and you know, uh, it's Listeners one of these things. Yo, please, please, uh, you know, tweet at us. Um, it's 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 also one of these things that I, I think Lash Quinn gets into is, you know, these were not these were not like self help books. These right. were actual philosophies that you know have like a metaphysics and probably mm -hmm. like a theory of like yeah. mineralogy and, yes. and you know like what an eel is and all this other stuff and it's you know sometimes i feel a little weird you know it seems like a very like touristy thing to do it's like well i'm just going to dabble in this and take part of that and just kind of throw it all together and let's ignore how these people probably thought that like there were celestial spheres and, you know, there is like a creator and all these other things. Well, those were very important to them. And I mean, maybe you disagree. Um, it always makes me a little leery of. No, because I think, um, again, I'm interested in. Uh, the when what? The practical. Yeah, I'm interested in, yeah. in uh, its application for today. And, and which is not to say I'm not also interested, you know, from a historical perspective or whatever. Uh, from a humanist perspective in, in the whole thing. Um, but yeah, I think probably it's probably fair to say that in the metaphysics, maybe Stoics and Epicureans were 180 degrees from each other. And this is what they fought about. And indeed, the Epicureans and the Stoics were very much at odds historically. I don't understand why, uh, but they were. And maybe it's because of all the metaphysics. Um, but when it comes to the practical um what a good life is and how to achieve it, they seem to, to really concur a lot. And that actually just kind of reinforces for me that you can, if, if they could arrive to the same conclusions from different places, uh, you know, great. So I, I'm not worried about that. I mean, I'd be interested in learning more about it, but I doesn't, doesn't bother me. Well, that's so sorry. Right. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, so we're running a little long. Uh, we should. Anna was saying they got the, He talked about the skeptics too. Yep, the skeptics. This is living in a barrel and masturbating in public. No, 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 it's not. That's that's the cynics. <laughs> is it? Yes, that's right. I'm sorry. I, I knew it. I knew it. For, which I knew is, I'd mess those up. And the cynics is interesting. So that's Diogenes, right? Um, right. Yeah. Cynicism is not a philosophy. 
that does not right. have a metaphysics or, or, or anything. It's just kind of like a, like a way of life. Like some people did it. People like Diogenes and maybe Thoreau just acted this way and we group them as aesthetics. So skeptics is, is an actual philosophy like Epicureanism or Stoicism. And basically what they want to do is reduce the amount of pain they experience, um, which is again, same kind of goal. But the way they do that is by refusing to think that things are bad. So there's Stoics kind of do this a little bit too, but, right. but basically whatever, so there's, a, there's a fatalism uh, component where whatever happens, you know, what's going to happen anyway. And I think the Stoics would be like, well, you can't change it. So there's no sense in worrying about it. Whereas these guys, I think would say, um, it must be good. If it happened to you, it must be good. Right. Yes. Um, which is kind of like a little bit of cheating, I think somehow. <laughs> yeah. It sounds, well, yeah. Some of this seems, all of them are obviously ways of coping and, mm -hmm. you know, some are a little bit more, uh, less pulling the wool over your own eyes than others. Um, and I, I think the other thing is fatalism has to do with like fate, right? Yes, yes. It's not, it's not, not oh, you're going to die, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But uh, that is the fate of every man. So of course it has to do with death, but it, and I think Lash Quinn talks about this too, is like people, they actually did believe in fate, like the fates. Yes. So it's, that might be part of the, uh, like the uh, metaphysical disagreement between these three uh, schools. That's right. I think the Stoics think um, there are certain things you can control. There are certain things that you cannot because those that's determined by fate. Yes, they're going to happen. They're going to happen. And I, and I think to a modern person, you could just substitute that by saying there are certain things you can't control because of randomness, right? You don't have to attribute that to any metaphysics that you, know, you can leave in the drawer uh, unlooked. That's right. <laughs> Apologies for confusing the uh, the cynics and the skeptics. Uh, taking points away from uh, that. I, re I read it. I read it. <laughs> yes. And then in, in the final section, there's this talk of the eccentrics. We, we spoke about them already, Diogenes and, and Thoreau. And um, I, I'm sure everyone knows, but did you know that like Thoreau's mother would do his laundry? <laughs> Which everybody points out whenever... You talk about the people point that out but as I, if it's some big indictment and why why is it an indictment he still lived the way he did he still yeah wrote what he wrote like so what what's like it's yeah. kind of it's the same thing as pointing out that seneca was very wealthy and uh um and didn't always speak his mind uh because he was gonna get his head cut off by the emperor right like so what well, it, I think and I read a little bit about this. He might have actually done like handyman work to pay for the laundry as well, which makes it even less of an indictment. But <laughs> uh, big of true. Uh, but I, I think it has to do with the fact that he was trying to, you know, live his own way and do his own thing and not, you know, interfere with not not be part of his surroundings. I mean, I, whether that's true or not, I think that's what people think he was trying to do. Right. Um, so if your mommy is doing your laundry for you, that's like, you know, that's like a college student who, who says, you know, uh, hey, I'm independent. Like, yeah. yeah, I'm independent. Like, f you, mom and dad. But like, you know, your allowance check was late last week, so could we, uh, you know, work on that? So it, it seems a little like. I guess. I guess the on. test of that is to say. Uh, if mom and dad don't pay the college bill, is the kid still independent? No, he's going to get tossed out. 
Yeah. If Thoreau's mother had died and she hadn't been able to do his laundry, would he have been able to do it himself in the river? Yes. No, he I don't think so. No, he would have. Anyhow, come back. <laughs> I like I like Thoreau. Uh, okay. Good writer. Um. All right. What did you think? Did you recommend the book? Yes, definitely. Uh, On Desire. Yes, uh, I do. I do. Um, lots of lots of good stuff about the Stoics, especially. Um, but interesting, you know, explanations of uh, Buddhism and the Amish as well. If you're if you're, you know, someone interested in that, and um, you know, like the, the 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 final section, like the conclusion chapter or section, whatever you want to call it, he does he does a very good job of just kind of reiterating, like here's what I said in a very organized manner. Uh, which compared to the other book uh, <laughs> was very, was, uh, you know, uh, was very nice and, and appreciated. And, you know, he's, he's a very good writer and, yeah. you know, I can't vouch for whether this is all correct or not. I'm not a philosophy professor, but um, you know, he does a good job of, of explaining these concepts and tying them into like what the point of the book is, right. which I think sometimes can get lost in some books. And so um, are you adopting any of these ways of life? Sandler. Uh, yeah, maybe later. <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> okay, so next time, your pick. My pick, uh, The Final Pagan Generation, Rome's Unexpected Path to Christianity by Edward Watts. And what's it about? I just said it, man. Okay. Uh, according to according to the Amazon. In fact, I don't maybe you asked the wrong question. Why did you choose it? So, well, what it's about is the, uh, the, the fascinating story of the lives and fortunes of the last Romans born before Emperor Constantine uh, converted to Christianity. So it is a history of the conversion of Roman society from, right. you know, paganism to Christianity in, I guess, the fourth century AD and how the final uh, pagan generation dealt with that. Um, just uh, a total not 180, but a, a total um, reconfiguration of, of society and religion and, and power politics and, and, and all of that. Um, and uh, the reason I chose this book is, you know, there are changes going on uh, <laughs> in contemporary America. And uh, one of my favorite uh, bloggers and writers and thinkers, Razib Khan, has um, mentioned this book as a good guide to what might be happening now and a good uh, uh, a good history to read for people who are maybe stuck in their the old ways about <laughs> what might be coming and how to deal with it right so um, but you know this is not like published by encounter books or you know some <laughs> right-wing uh, publisher not there's anything wrong with that uh, it's a university press. It's a, you know, like a scholarly history of what happened yeah. uh, in the fourth century as, as the Roman, uh, Roman Empire became Christian. Right. Uh, excellent. I look forward to reading it. Uh, I hope it's not terrible. <laughs> no, I, I've, I've, I've read the introduction. It's great. It's really good. Ah, okay. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, with that, Amazing. This, uh, I thought we would have nothing to talk about. Um, well, that remains to be seen. Probably right? the longest episode <laughs> uh, we've done. So um, we should have a code word. So people can oh, tweet okay. us a code word to let us know if they actually listened to the entire thing. What would you, what would you say the code word should be? 
what, let me look at my notes. Is there a good note? Um, I wrote one of my notes is Diogenes is a shit poster. So ah. maybe that. <laughs> Diogenes is a shit poster. Very good. Yeah. All right. See you next time, Stanley. All right, Jerry. Bye.